Welcome to the Spiral Inquiry Podcast, where we explore the foundations of science, faith, and philosophy. The topic today is Thinking Beyond the Empirical Frontiers, an essay I originally presented at the Science and Non-Duality Conference in San Jose, California in October of 2017. Thinking Beyond the Empirical Frontiers. What do I mean by this? Well, thinking is what we do to make sense of the world. Yes, we have emotional and spiritual context in our experience, but we need to find a way to wrap our heads around it, so to speak. We are cognitive, sentient beings. We seek to build a cognitive map of how the world works and what gives it meaning. So what do I mean by empirical frontiers? I'm talking about empirical science and the mathematics on which it has been constructed. In the past hundred years or so, math and science have been struggling with a number of hard limits, barriers impervious to logic or analysis. These are the frontiers. At the same time, science and technology have been fantastic at fulfilling physical needs and wants. In a hundred years, the human population has increased almost tenfold, and the production of goods and services by a hundred. This outstanding material success has allowed our institutions, our cultures, and our psyches to lose contact with the more challenging and subtle pathways to spiritual success. I believe the hard limits on the empirical frontier provide an opportunity to reassess our obsession with material reality, and the nature of those limits points to some fascinating ideas, many of which have been explored by mystics and theologians across the centuries. I'm going to start with mathematics. Section 2. Empirical Frontiers in Math and Logic There are three giants that have made particularly important contributions to math and logic in the past hundred years or so. Georg Cantor, Alan Turing, and Kurt Gödel. Cantor invented set theory, and he proved that infinities come in different sizes and have a kind of arithmetic. This seemed to put some useful parameters around infinity, which was encouraging, since infinities are used in math and science a lot, and specifically in calculus. Yet, oddly enough, no mathematician or computer will ever count to infinity, and no physicist will ever be able to observe it. There's an interesting thought experiment about infinity. Imagine a hundred monkeys typing, presumably randomly, on a hundred typewriters for a limitless period of time. Eventually, hidden in the endless streams of nonsense, they would produce all the works of Shakespeare. Can you tell the difference between something that looks like Shakespeare, but was just extracted from all the monkey nonsense, or the actual work of Shakespeare? No. So, when people try to draw a conclusion about a very large or infinite data set like the multiverse, it might not actually be meaningful. Anything is possible. The concept of infinity also has a reciprocal, the concept of nothingness. Zero may seem to be simpler than infinity, 
but neither can be concretely conceived. The very act of thinking about nothing gives it substance, contradicting its nature. Thinking about infinity is trying to bound what is unbounded. Consider the simple formula x equals 1 over y. If we let y get bigger, the value of x gets smaller. And the mathematical limit of x as y approaches infinity is zero. Zero and infinity are reciprocal and beyond the empirical frontier. Turing is sometimes described as the father of computer science, having proved the feasibility of a universal computing machine. Turing also found that certain classes of computing problems were undecidable. Do you remember in the movie Imitation Game when Turing was staring at his machine as it tried to solve the German Enigma code and the wheels kept spinning around? That is the riddle of Turing's halting problem. The team cracked the Enigma code, but the formal problem of determining if an algorithm will ever halt cannot be solved. In fact, it is one of an infinite number of really, really hard problems called NP, or non-polynomial. In 2000, the Clay Foundation offered a million dollars to anyone who can find a shortcut to any NP-complete problem. That would change the future of the world because someone has proved that if you find one shortcut, you can find them all, kind of like that ring in The Lord of the Rings. The betting is there are no shortcuts and that our universe is full of non-computable, undecidable problems. Their solutions are beyond the empirical frontier. Gödel was a friend of Einstein at Princeton, and he is considered one of the most significant logicians in history. His big contribution was proving his two incompleteness theorems at the age of 25. One, in any self-consistent recursive logical system, there are true propositions that cannot be proved. Two, such a system cannot demonstrate its own consistency. Well, how bad is this? Well, these findings apply to basically everything in math, including set theory and arithmetic. So, if you had planned on starting your quest for truth with logic, as I did, you will be disappointed. How did Gödel construct his proof? He relied on a particular category of logical statements that refer to themselves. For example, quote, this statement contains five words, is self-referential. It's perfectly sensible, and it's true. Now consider the sentence, this statement is false. If true, the statement contradicts itself. If false, it curls back and bites its own tail. Quite simply, all systems of thought, logic, math, language, your favorite theory of the universe, if they are self-reverential and self-consistent, they are going to be incomplete. There are truths that cannot be proven beyond the empirical frontier. Section 3. Empirical Frontiers in Physics. So let's move into the more practical field of physics. 
In 1903, A. A. Mickelson stated, quote, The more important fundamental laws and facts of physical science have all been discovered. His remark underscores the remarkable conceptual power of Newtonian mechanics. But relativity and quantum physics soon changed all that. A hundred years later, physicists do not have a consistent theory about the universe. And even Stephen Hawking recently gave up on the theory of everything. Einstein started this revolution with his theories of special and general relativity. Time and space are no longer a fixed reference frame. Simultaneity and the measurement of time and space are relative. Ever since, physicists have been telling us that our perceptions of time and space are mere illusions. Now, I have a problem with this. We all have an immediate experience of time and space more real to our lives than any conceptual loaf of Minkowski space-time. But more significantly, the denial of our subjective experience compounds the original error of Cartesian dualism by throwing away the most important half of the mind-matter pair. As a result, I believe our civilization in the past hundred years has tilted to secular, physical materialism and lost touch with much of our humanity. I'm pleased that many of the sessions at this conference are part of, of an effort to reclaim it. You may know that Heisenberg's uncertainty principle says, you cannot measure the location of an electron without changing its momentum and vice versa. This seems like a simple matter until you apply it to the entirety of quantum physics we are unable to peer into time or space at the smallest scale below the metric known as Planck space and Planck time. Even if we could, these tiny bits of reality contain no useful information. Their interiors are subject to infinite probabilistic variations, a condition some refer to as quantum foam. The complementarity principle of Niels Bohr affirms the reality and the apparent paradoxes of quantum physics, wave-particle duality, quantum superposition, and the entanglement of paired particles that results in, quote, spooky action at a distance, an idea that confounded even Einstein. And physicists remain baffled by the observer problem the physical event of quantum waveform collapse requires an observer. The quantum system must have both the observer and the observed. So let's review. Gödel proved that all self-referencing logical systems are vulnerable to paradox and cannot prove all true statements. The physical universe, according to reality, relativity and quantum physics, is a self-referential system. A quantum system must have an observer. Time and space can only be defined relative to the location and motion of observers. Cosmology itself is the science of human observation of the universe. What can we conclude from this? Section 4, Self-Reference, invokes the empirical frontier. Self-reference lies at the heart of logic, 
of quantum physical reality and of consciousness. The paradoxes we find in relativity and quantum physics are the Gudelian consequence of the self-referential nature of physical reality. From this we conclude that the truths of the physical universe are not fully accessible to science, and they never will be. In addition, human beings are self-referential systems, conscious and self-aware. A complete understanding of the nature of consciousness and of humanity is inaccessible to empirical science. A complete understanding of physics, of the human mind, and of the universe as a whole will always be beyond the empirical frontier. Section 5. Exploring Beyond the Frontier So here we are on the physical side of the empirical frontier. On this side, we have what is finite, relative, uncertain, non-computable, incomplete, and paradoxical as well as a hell of a lot of useful empirical knowledge. On the other side, we have infinity and nothing, the answers to undecidable problems, the truths that we cannot prove, and perhaps an understanding of life, consciousness, and the cosmos. There's something else on the other side of the empirical frontier, meaning. As many have said, empirical science can explain the how, but not the why. The physical world cannot provide data about its own cause or its own purpose without some understanding from the far side of the empirical frontier. Just like we know that a physical word is not the same thing as the meaning of the word, physical experience is not the same thing as what it means. Meaning is on the far side of the empirical frontier. So, what does it take to get from here to there? How do we cross the frontier? Ultimately, we have to take a leap of faith. Section 6. Faith is essential to knowing. Faith is a commitment to something that cannot be known with certainty. Faith governs the far side of the empirical frontier, and it is essential to consciousness. Why? because the capacity for self-reflection, which invokes Gedelian incompleteness, brings the far side into being. We are observing from the inside what can only be fully understood from the outside with the eyes of faith. Even empirical science is grounded on faith, faith that the regularities we observe in the physical world are reliable and will endure, and faith that we can understand them. I share this faith, mostly, but I acknowledge that we can't prove it. Some people go further. They have faith that the universe is random, that it is not guided by purposeful agency, and that the physical world is all there is. There are no non-physical causes, no miracles, and no mysteries. I've argued that these articles of faith are misplaced. They are not based on science but on rejecting the idea that there is anything other than the empirical. However, this also rejects the legitimacy of our own subjective experience, something I find incomprehensible. I argue that it is essential to remain open to the far side of the empirical frontier and to explore not only empirical evidence, 
but also the intuitions, insights, feelings, revelations, and miracles that, at least potentially, offer evidence from the other side. How do we navigate in the turbulent waters between faith and science? That is the role of philosophy, not the philosophy of the academics, but philosophy as originally intended. The word philosophy means love of wisdom, and wisdom is about making choices that lead to a better life. So we have to apply our cognitive talents to matters of both science and faith. Think deeply and think honestly about both. Assess the consequences of different hypotheses and evaluate how our choices of what to think and what to believe can make a difference in our lives. This is not easy. The latest neuropsychology tells us that our cognitive frame is a tough helmet. You can't crack it open with facts or arguments. You need to sneak under it with the help of stories, questions, social cues, or emotions. And a commitment of faith is an act of the will embraced by the heart. This cannot be changed by force as any two-year-old will demonstrate. The heart needs to be softened by affection, by love, by awe, or sometimes by pain, in order for faith to shift. So let's be curious and keep an open mind, and let our hearts be warm, ready to embrace new wisdom. Section 7, Complexity Offers a Key Insight. I want to close by talking about another empirical frontier, the science of complexity. From chaos theory to fractals, from emergence to scale-free networks, complexity science offers some radically new ideas. It all began with the study of statistical mechanics. Physical systems involve interactions of many particles. While the individual interactions are too chaotic to measure, the average statistical behavior is not. And, on average, as particles interact, they tend to get mixed up and spread around evenly. The measure of this mixing is called entropy, and the second law of thermodynamics states that entropy always increases. Stuff gets mixed up and becomes more homogeneous. However, some systems, like living organisms as they grow, become more structured and less mixed up. For a time, it was argued that life was in its own category and subject to some sort of vital force that could overcome entropy. But it turns out that physical systems, including galaxies, vortices, crystals, as well as life forms, all exhibit counter-entropic behavior. They get more complex and less homogeneous over time. How does this work? The simple answer is that local structures emerge by exporting entropy to the larger environment. The entire universe as a whole continues to run down towards some icy and inevitable death, perhaps. But as it does, local pockets of increasing organization and structure emerge. This process is explained in the theory of nonlinear dynamic systems pioneered by Ilya Prigione and others. Stable structures emerge in such systems by dissipating energy and exporting entropy. 
All of the structures in the universe are the result of dynamic systems that exhibit this behavior. Delicate snowflakes form in the dynamic chaos of moisture-laden clouds. Turbulent water forms swirling eddies, dancing waves, and shimmering surfaces. Birds flock in a dancing, spiraling configuration known as a murmuration. The sunflower produces a beautifully ordered and structured pattern in its seed head, following the energy-minimizing rules of the Fibonacci sequence, resulting in a structure with multiple interlocking spirals spinning both left and right. The stable states that dynamic systems tend to create are called, in the jargon of complexity theory, attractor states. Dynamic systems are attracted to specific configurations. Many are in the shape of spirals. Significantly, attractor states at the system level result from cooperation among the component units. Water molecules learn to spin around each other rather than bumping as they rush to the drain, forming a whirlpool. Chemical reactions are a kind of intense cooperation among different molecules cooperation that leads to more complex chemical structures, including, eventually, the double helix of the DNA molecule that is the basis for life. Cells cooperate in sophisticated ways, both in building unicellular colonies and in serving a multiplicity of functions in multicellular animals. Ant colonies, as well as human institutions, arise from the collective cooperative behaviors of the individuals. The interactions among the dynamic systems across the various levels are also reciprocal. Water molecules are self-contained complex systems. They become turbulent when disturbed by gravity. The system as a whole guides the molecules into the form of a whirlpool. Ants, self-contained complex systems in themselves, build a colony, and the emergent features of the colony protect and preserve the ants. Ultimately, this reciprocity cascades through all the levels of emergent systems in physics, chemistry, biology, and human behavior. Why are these features of complexity important? Because they point to a fundamental characteristic of physical reality. It is not random. It is guided along a path that exhibits attraction, cooperation, and reciprocity. This guidance is what I call cosmic intentionality. It is directed to a specific purpose, the continuing evolution of increasingly complex emergent systems, including the physical world, life, and consciousness. What should we call this intentional guidance that encourages attraction, cooperation, and reciprocation at all levels of physical reality? I call it, quite simply, love. Epilogue, the origin of universal love. At this conference, a number of ideas have been suggested for the ultimate source of love flowing through the universe. According to Bob Thurman, that source would be the Buddhaverse. Robert Lanza would say the source is to be found in biocentrism. I put my faith in an infinite, universal God, creator and sustainer of the physical universe and the spiritual heavens. The purpose of this creation is to facilitate reciprocal communion, a conscious, freely willed sharing 
of joy, gratitude, and mutual loving kindness. Thanks for listening to the Spiral Inquiry Podcast. I'm your host, George Gans. Be sure to subscribe for more podcasts and please visit spiralinquiry.org to explore the intersection of science, faith, and philosophy and to contribute your own ideas to the conversation. 